Hey, James. Steven. Got a question for you today. Oh, my God. Where's this Another one come from? Another question. I believe this does come from Quora, which began, when we began this show, Quora was where we got all our questions. We've branched out a little bit, but I'm going back to the well. This Quora question says, what, and I'm asking you this question because I might have a thing or two to say about it, but I know that you have some things to say about it. Because the thing about you, James, is like sometimes I feel like I know you pretty well. We've been buddies for 12, 13, 14 years. But very often you'll start to tell me something, like a whole realm of your life that I've never heard about before, some things that you know. You know a lot of stuff. That's what I'm trying to say. You know a lot of stuff. I am a hermaphrodite. Uh, I never told you that before. I did not know that. I thought you were going to say, I am a stuff magnet. I have two sets of... Whatever. Con- congratulations <laughs> are in you. order. I'm not sure what how so, what's the proper what did Emily Post say you were supposed to say to someone who reveals their hermaphroditism? Uh has Emily Post actually commented on that? <laughs> I- I'm guessing not, but uh if she had. What would be the proper etiquette thing? I think you should still refer to someone well, I don't know. Okay. I don't Maybe know. we can work on that in yeah. the future in a future episode. So this question is relatively easier, I would say, but I know that you've got some answers for it. Um, James, what are some amazing marketing success stories? And let me just say, to prejudice what I want you to answer, let me just say that I'm a person who's fairly skeptical of marketing success stories because I personally believe that causality is very hard to establish with marketing and advertising. Yeah, I think I think marketing is a weird word. Like people talk about the economy and whether there's inflation or deflation of prices, but they leave out the word marketing when they like economists never talk about marketing or rarely do. Like you're like maybe behavioral economists no, you, you, talk about you're marketing. Right, you're right. But let's that- just take standard macroeconomics. But think about prices. Prices are often influenced not by supply and demand, but by marketing. So why should Coca-Cola be more expensive than James Cola, if I made my own cola? By the way, do you know, you may not know this, we did a Freakonomics program about generics versus premium brand names. Did you know uh, this literature at all? It's fascinating. So it finds that people who are experts in their field, so if I'm looking at medicines, generic Headache medicine, you know, ibuprofen versus, which is the brand name of, um, I guess that would be Advil, Advil right? And Motrin. Or acetaminophen, Tylenol. Tylenol. You find that uh, experts, um, pharmacists, for instance, that the vast, vast, vast majority of them buy generic. You find that with people who cook for a living, when you're looking at different, you know, staples especially, the vast majority buy generic. And it turns out that people in the know almost always never fall sucker to the to the brand name marketing and sure. reputation. So there's a great story. A bunch of scientists did a study where they put up a bunch of products on eBay okay. and sold them. And then, you know, and eBay is an auction system. So, you know, the auction determines the price. And then they put up the same products, but they put up a story. Like, this knife was used by my grandfather in China and, you know, survived all these wars. So and not necessarily the, implicit value. Like, not like this belonged to Keith Carradine. Right, but just the story itself, um, like, tripled the prices. Yeah. So, and that's a, for, sto- marketing is storytelling. So, the the song, I'd Like to Buy the World of Coke, which... Of course, it's such I'd a like great. Like to buy the world a Coke. Uh, a Coke, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I, some people might like to buy the Royal Coke. <laughs> they might. But I'd like to buy the Royal Coke. Not only was it a, such a powerful commercial for Coke in the 70s, but it even closed the TV show right, Mad and Men. And provided, thank God, they really needed it. And I mean, that was a hard show to end. Yeah, so so clearly uh, that's all of a marketing success story, Coca-Cola. But I think those types of success stories are ending because just having a flashy ad is not where people are consuming their content. They're consuming their content on the internet where storytelling becomes even increasingly more important. Mm -hmm. So I think successful stories now is almost a lack of marketing. So for instance, the best way to market a book right now is to write another book and and have social proof, to have other people say your book is great. So my guess is, and I have no data to back this up, my guess is books with more reviews on Amazon tend to sell better just because there's a lot of social proof. Books that have uh, scientific facts backing them uh, tend to sell better because they're scientific proof. So, and this is what happens in direct response marketing where you're not allowed to do a commercial. You have to immediately say, this is the greatest thing I've ever used. Or four out of five tend to say, you know, this works. So social proof, scientific mm. proof, um, the scientific proof might be, here's links to um, proven journals that are recommending this product. And then finally, doing it again. So the best uh, romance authors don't just put out one romance book, they put out 10 romance books. The best YouTube video stars, the ones who make millions of dollars a year on YouTube, didn't just put up one YouTube video. They maybe like Michelle Fon's a great example. She does makeup videos. She put up 54 videos that had no views. And then the 54th video was her doing makeup, how Lady Gaga does makeup. So it became a huge video. Now Michelle Fon's business is worth something like $100 million. All right, James, this question is pretty under control. We don't really need to buy any time. But that said, we'll have the answer right after this break. Do you love books but find that you never have time to read them? Well, Audible.com has the perfect solution. Get to those books you've been meaning to read by listening to them while on the go. Their app is free and works on all of your favorite devices. And since Audible.com provides over 180,000 audio programs, you'll never be lacking new and interesting options to listen to. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your own books, so you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your smartphone. Don't like the book you choose? No worries. Thanks to Audible's great listen guarantee, you can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. And just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash question to start your free trial today. Again, show your support for question of the day and get a free audiobook and 30-day trial at audible.com slash question. I really like, uh, and well, I, I like I like it because I happen to agree with it, even though it's largely unprovable, which is that the best marketing is good content. So like our Freakonomics, quote, marketing strategy for the past 10 years has been we don't have a marketing strategy. I mean, we do marketing and like our publishers and even our radio station, they kind of market a little bit. But I don't think any of that works at all. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say when your book first came out, mm-hmm. 
the very first book, Freakonomics, that week, you used very traditional marketing. Your publisher paid the bookstores right, but to my, put, the, put the book uh, on the front table. Most right. people don't realize this. Every book on the front table, right, those are even the staff purchases. picks, right. are paid right. by the publisher. Right, but here's my point. What's the ROI on that marketing dollar? And the answer to that is nobody knows really. So a lot of people kind of pretend. And one really good thing about the digital era is we are getting now better ROI on marketing and advertising because it's simply easier to measure. So in the old days, you mentioned, you know, I'd like to buy the world of Coke, okay? So let's pretend that in constant dollars, in today's dollars, they spent, how much do you think on that campaign? A billion dollars in today's dollars? I have no idea. Let's, let's make I don't it know. Up. Let's say, ten, Whatever. Let's say call, $10 million. Call it $10. It doesn't yeah. matter. Let's call it $10. Um, how do you measure the ROI in that? Let's say that their sales increased globally 15% in the year after that ad ran. So it might be a very natural conclusion for a lot of people to say, oh, that ad was incredibly popular because sales went up and therefore the ROI on that marketing campaign was somewhere on the order of 15%. On the other hand, the problem is there are a million other confounding factors potentially, right? Prices may have changed, demand may have changed for other reasons, supply may have changed, people may, uh, rivals may have changed. So to try to measure the actual ROI on a dollar in advertising and marketing has always been incredibly hard. Like I said, with the digital world, it's getting easier because there are some channels that are so tight. Like, we do commercials on this podcast and other podcasts. And have you noticed that a lot of podcast commercials have a call-out to go to an URL and do something? The reason the advertising rates on podcasts are relatively high on a CPM or cost per thousand basis relative to a lot of other media is because you can measure those pretty easily and they work. Right. Now, I'm not saying others don't work. I'm not saying podcasts are so great. But you can't know the efficacy of something until you can start to measure it. And in the old days, they were making it up. And not only were they making it up, I remember I was talking once to the head of a television network. And I'll just flat out say, I don't even know if the network still exists. It was VH1. And uh, he said, the worst thing anybody should do he said to me, the worst thing anybody should do is buy an ad on the television network. <laughs> so, and that's all he did all day long was sell ads for television network. So, so, so what I'm well, going to say. Mean, and he's probably got a lot more data than the average bear because he knows the buyers who don't resubscribe. Right? right. So he knows the people that bought $10 million worth of advertising and said, what do we get for this? No discernible difference. Right. So what I'm going to suggest is, is three things. First off, there are two good books you can read on, on this type of topic. One is um, uh, Robert Cialdini's oh, Influence. Influence, great book. Uh, another one is a book by a guy, Michael Masterson, called Persuasion, and he writes about copywriting, so how you can write to make your content uh, be more direct response-oriented. Uh, I'll also throw out there uh, studying Kevin Harrington's infomercials because infomercials are very much about you right then picking up the phone and calling. So he knows exactly what it takes to get people to pick up the phone and make a buy. And then finally, it's what you said, uh, the best the best marketing is good content. If, if you write the next book and the next book and the next book, eventually people are going to hear about you and that's the best you can do. People always say to me, how do I market my novel? Write another novel. Right. So James, even though I was ridiculing the ability of people, especially marketers and advertisers, to measure 
the ROI. And, and if you think about it, if you're an ad agency, well, of course you're going to say, you know, we're going to paint a very pretty picture because that's my business. It's like the idea of never ask a barber if you need a haircut because the answer is always yes. Never ask an ad agency. Particularly if you're talking about my hair. That's, the barber that's always, always says yes. A haircut. <laughs> but I am holding in my hands here a report that was issued by the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, which is a British trade association. Okay, It's called The so, Long and Short of It. So, of course, they're biased. I am always leery of pointing the finger at people and saying they're they're patently biased, but it's not hard to imagine where their alliances lie. But they've put out this report that's kind of impressive in some ways. The people who put it together are very, very smart, very well-educated, at least I should say. And they've come to some conclusions here that I just want to read to you and because I think it might, for anybody who cares about this kind of stuff, it might give at least a few things to think about, if not conclusions. So this is just from the, the, the executive summary of this report. The report is called The Long and the Short of It, for what it's worth. Uh, I don't know if it's really available. Somebody sent it to me, but so I'll read you some. The way in which long-term effects are generated is fundamentally different from how short-term effects are produced. Although long-term effects always produce some short-term effects, the reverse is not true. And long-term effects are not simply an accumulation of short-term effects. So maybe kind of obvious, but I thought it was an interesting... Let's explain that a little further. You're basically saying... Uh, like an advertisement like the Coke commercial in the 70s produced this long-term effect that Coke uh, instills itself in our cultural imagination, but you might not be able to measure the short-term effects. Whereas if I were to write an article about Coke saying, oh, it cures these five diseases, that might have a short-term effect that that week somebody might buy it, mm-hmm. but then eventually that short-term effect wears off and doesn't it doesn't create itself in our cultural consciousness the way the Coke commercial did, the Mac uh, 1980 commercial did and so on. Right. Although, interestingly, for every example you've given, the fact is is that it's easy to find and tell or make up a story that explains after the fact why the marketing worked. Whereas in fact... Which is why ad agencies did so well. Why they did so well. (laughs) Although doing much, much, much less well now, I should say. But the fact is, is that people like Coke because people like Coke. People like Apple products because people like Apple products. So again, to attribute their I don't know, success... I, I don't know if that's true. I think it's marketing. Um, I'm sure marketing plays some role. I think, however, the success of marketing that we attribute to products that turn out to be successful is often misplaced. Because you know why? Here's what nobody ever does. Nobody ever goes back and looks at the great marketing campaigns that won awards for companies that went out of business. Sounds like a good project. It does sound do. like a good... All right, but let me keep reading. So more on short-term, long-term here. A succession of short-term, response-focused campaigns, including promotionally-driven ones, like a, a coupon or a special offer or whatever, will not succeed as strongly over the longer term as a single brand-building campaign designed to achieve year-on-year improvement to business success. Now, again, keep in mind, this is a report written by the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising. So plainly, it's in their interest to promote the efficacy of long-term marketing campaigns because the longer term, the more money they stand to make. But I do want to suggest that uh, direct response marketing, which is much more focused on short-term because they want a direct response, those guys have historically, for 100 years, made an enormous amount of money uh, an enormous amount of profits. And I've seen it. I've seen it in every industry I've been involved in and every industry I've been invested in that, you know, highly professional, written by copywriters who have studied these books I've mentioned before, produces amazing results. True as that may be, that doesn't mean that for the firm or for the product, that's the right move. 
That, right? that could be Although, for, for the long term. For the long term. Here's another one. Interesting. This is really interesting. Emotional campaigns, and in particular those that are highly creative and generate powerful fame slash buzz effects. The Coke pro- commercial. There you go. Produce considerably more powerful long-term business effects than rational persuasion campaigns. Well, okay, so that's written by an advertising firm go, instead right? of a direct <laughs> response marketing firm. And and again, it just depends. It's a difference between money tomorrow and market share in your industry. So it's, re- it's almost like two different goals is what they're saying. Let me read one last one. Strategies that maximize short-term volume growth are different from those that minimize price elasticity over the longer term. To achieve both... I don't uh, understand. Okay, so basically... If I try to manipulate or increase demand by lowering my price, then that will work for me in all likelihood because we know that people respond to price. But yes. in terms of creating our brand larger and longer, it can work against that goal. So let me just say, everything I've read from this report, I take with like 100 grains of salt. Okay, because I, I want to say also to that, though, specifically that, you're very right. Like, let's say you say there's a discount of 20%, but there's a deadline tomorrow night. So not only are you adding the discount and the coupon, but you're adding scarcity, right. saying the deadline's tomorrow night. Right. We so know that we know that works what in I've terms seen of is generating even demand. If, even if you have like a month-long campaign, if you say deadline tomorrow night, the final six hours is gonna be like add up to all the rest of the days in a campaign. That reminds me, James. Did you know that Question of the Day, the podcast, can only be subscribed to for free on iTunes and elsewhere for the next three hours and 24 minutes and 35 seconds. People better hop on that. Do you know most everything? Stick around to see if you know the answer to next episode's question. Again, we'd like to thank today's sponsor, Audible.com. They have over 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. You can catch up on all the hot new books you've been meaning to read while on your daily commute with Audible.com. Just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash question to start your free trial today. Here's what we have lined up for the next episode of Question of the Day. Let's say you are 80 years old, and I say to you, I would like to have this rent-controlled apartment when you die, so why don't we work something out where you'll get some cash in the short term, a big pot that you could use for whatever you want, and I become your adoptee, and that way the apartment is mine. 